everybody, and welcome to Shift F1, a podcast about speedy race cars. I am Drew Scanlon. Joining me is Rob Zachney. Denny O'Dwyer is out this week. Uh, we begin this episode on a somber note. This weekend in Belgium, uh, 22-year-old Formula 2 driver Antoine Hubert uh, lost his life in the opening lap of the Formula 2 feature race at Spa. Um, Rob, you've been uh, digging in a little bit into what exactly happened here. Um, can you uh, give sort of an overview of what happened? Yeah, uh, it's a really, I guess the, the thing to know about this up front is it is an unexpected uh, accident and a tragic result, but it does come in a part of the spa circuit where there have been apparently a number of uh, near misses before. And so sort of in the wake of this, there probably is going to be some reevaluation of the first sector of spa. Um, what ended up happening here on the second lap of the Formula 2 feature race this week was uh, Giuliano Alesi lost control of his car heading into uh, Radion. And Hubert was trying to evade. And um, apparently Alesi had had a, a, a puncture. Uh, Hubert was trying to evade. He made contact. I think he clipped his wing um, on Alesi's car. But he ended up going to the barriers and getting bounced back into the racetrack uh, sort of broadside. And right at that moment, uh, driver Juan Manuel Correa came up the hill at high speed and uh, just hit him squarely in the center of the chassis. Um, Hubert was was pronounced dead uh, an hour and after the accident. Um, there have been no real details about what exactly the cause was, or, or whether he he actually did survive that that impact at all, uh, but it was it was a, it was a severe and ugly incident. Um, Correa himself broke both his legs and uh, underwent surgery as well. Um, he also has a spinal injury, uh, and there's scanty details right now. I think of as of time of recording, he's still in intensive care, uh, and the word on him is it's going to be a long road uh, to recovery. Um, this is a part of the course that has been kind of a known issue. Uh, I think, you know, if you hear us talking about it a week ago, or if you he heard us talking about it last year, uh, Eau Rouge up into Radion is kind of one of the iconic moments of Spa. Um, it's, it's sort of a beloved, uh, ex exciting sequence. It's also a very dangerous one. Um, the factors that kind of apparently contributed to this is one drivers coming up the hill can't see the top of radio, which means they can't see if they're heading into trouble. This all happened so quickly that before there were any yellows deployed, uh, drivers coming up the hill were in the accident scene. Um, and so that, that lack of visibility contributed to it. Uh, the fact that you don't have large, uh, gravel runoff areas there to sort of arrest the speed of cars. Uh, that the cars basically are at risk of bouncing back into the racing line uh, is a concern with that part of the track, but also it's one that's difficult to get around. Uh, if you look at sort of the aerial photography of the circuit, um, the Camel Strait, which Redion, uh lets out onto is kind of at the top of a ridge. 
and to the right-hand side, which would be the outside of Radion, um, that is where you have a pretty steep bluff. And so you can't, a runoff can't be placed there. Uh, there's simply nowhere to run off to. And so what they've had uh, has been a guardrail with a tire barrier that does kind of, if you look, it's sort of slanted back into the racing line. The runoff they do have is asphalt. And obviously, uh, if you've watched the race, you probably saw people cutting it. Um, if you've botched the corner yourself uh, play, playing games, there's obviously a huge runoff area to the left of the uh, Eau Rouge uh, corner heading up into Radion that you can kind of straight line. And what both of these, the, the, there's a couple schools of thought about these uh, runoff areas. One is that Eau Rouge and Radia have become areas where drivers feel very comfortable taking them flat out. And with the asphalt runoffs, um, if somebody does go off, there's really nothing to sort of slow them down. Uh, they, they will carry all that, all that speed throughout. And so in the wake of this, in the wake of this, uh, of, of this tragedy, it seems like something about that, sequence is going to have to change it's worth noting it's changed before this is a pretty heavily edited part of spa spa's layout has changed a great many times over the years um eau rouge itself used to be the start of uh kind of a uh lost hairpin uh almost uh that that if you look at old maps it went into what was called the uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna butcher this uh because my my I, I don't speak french uh the virage d'ancien douane uh, which was basically a, you see the aerial photos, there was a hard cutout left and then a sharp hairpin. And then um, it brought you back onto the Camel straight that the modern corner complex basically cuts that uh, hairpin. So that, you know, this is, this is a part of the track that is hard to edit, uh, but it does seem like it is editable. The other thing that maybe, uh, they'll be considering in the wake of this is it's possible those um, asphalt runoffs just aren't good enough um, that while they prevent drivers from ending their race early when they when they misjudge that when they must judge that turn uh, the runoffs don't do anything as far as slowing cars or beaching them and preventing them from traveling back into the racing line uh, so you know those are but I think <sighs> The, the thing to note here is this is an incredibly hard crash to solve for. Um, there are a limited number of ways. There, 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 are, there are really very few ways uh, you can go about addressing the survivability of an open-wheel race car in a broadside collision at those speeds. Um, there are laws of physics that you're, you're up against the lateral G's, uh, that drivers will be exposed to in those are hard to survive. So this is not a solution you can sort of car safety your, your, your way out of, uh, what you're looking at is just trying to create a course layout where that doesn't happen. Um, that being said, there are a lot of forms there. I'm sure, I'm sure there are a lot of places in open real racing where those incidents are a risk, but it does appear like Eau Rouge and Radion uh, are an elevated risk for this kind of incident. 
And so I would not be surprised if uh, certainly by next year, we've seen some kind of tweak to Oruj and Radion to prevent what happened from happening again. Yeah, it, it seems to me like the the sort of narrative around this crash um, was less about it being anyone's fault or even that it was a, um, uh, you know, just a, a freak accident. But the it, it seems more like people are thinking instead of about uh, rules or car design, it's now the focus has shifted to track design uh, and, and track safety um, first and foremost. So. Yeah. Um and I think that's, you know, it, it's it's one of those things where with each one of these in, incidents, a lot of information is gathered and, uh, you know, new thing, new, new things, new layouts can be can be put in place. Um, but I, I don't know. It's it's such a. It's strange. I was looking at. Um, the ways other other motorsports deaths uh, have been responded to uh, in in recent years, um, and I think it's surprising sometimes just how matter of fact a lot of drivers are about the risks they run, and I don't know whether. I don't know whether that attitude is correct, but I know, but I know it's kind of a, a, a school of thought in, in open real racing. Um, you know, I was, I was looking up what John Surtees said after uh, his son Henry was killed by a loose wheel at Silverstone. And uh, John Surtees, uh, after he had gotten over his initial anger and grief, uh, you know, toward the sport, he gave an odd comment um but i think it's probably shared by a lot of a lot of old racers uh, he said the last thing i'd want to come out of henry's death is overregulation of the sport and crusade against risk compared to my day when drivers were regularly killed when we drove death traps the safety record of the sport is now excellent you probably have more people dying in mountaineering accidents than on racing tracks you can't stop young people from reaching for the sky trying to achieve their dreams yes we need to look at how we can improve uh but you can't eliminate the danger entirely and there's a part of me that understands that incidents like this are inevitable in motorsport. Um, the other week we were talking about oval racing and my increasing ambivalence just about that, whether that's something that can be responsibly done. Um, and I think it's, it's a strange thing, but I, I hate feeling that incidents like this are inevitable and all you can do is find the specific places where they happen and then try to make it so that incident can never happen again. Um, and it does sometimes feel like you are like, you know, the people governing these sports are continually closing barn doors after the horses have bolted. Hmm. Um, but it may also just be the nature of um, what, what modern motor racing is at this point. Uh, we've, we no longer have the, 
the high frequency of incidents and magnitude of incidents that, that we used to. Uh, but, but what that's left us with is a lot of these really specific places where there's a potential problem, but nothing's happened yet. Uh, and, you know, over, over the long haul, something will inevitably happen in those places. Yeah. And I, you know, I guess it's, it's good that at least when these things do happen, it is such a shock to us. Um, you know, sort of an indication that it's getting more and more rare, but, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a dangerous sport. We've always known that. Um, the drivers know that. Uh, and so I think, uh, it was Martin Brundle that said, um, right before, the Formula One race kicked off that, uh, in, in, you know, in regards to this, we, we only really know how to do one thing and that's go racing. So let's go racing. Uh, I thought that was a, a good concise quote about the, the mentality and, um, speaking of racers and their mentality <laughs> this week was, uh, was not kind to the motorsport world in general. Um, uh, another racer, woman named Jessie Combs was uh, attempting to set her own or to break her own uh, land speed record uh, in a uh, jet-powered car um, last week and uh, and was killed in the attempt. Uh, I actually worked with Jessie for about a day as part of a shoot that I did for a friend uh, a while ago. Um, and even though, you know, I didn't really know her personally, she still made an impression. And it's, it's rare for me as someone outside of racing circles to meet someone in person who has that quality that's always talked about in regards to racing drivers, that sort of singular focus and fearlessness. Uh, and until you meet someone like that, those words don't really register. Um, and, and, you know, you could kind of feel it in the room uh, uh, with Jesse. She's like operating on another level. So um, that, that was, uh, again, certainly made an impression and it's, it's frankly enviable to me to have such clarity about who you are and, and what you're doing. Uh, so I do take some solace in the fact that, you know, both these people were doing what they love doing. Um, and I'm, I'm glad there are people out there, uh, you know, like these two who can, who can serve as uh, an inspiration to do wild and crazy things. Cause, um, frankly, uh, I think we, we need that in our, in our modern world. But, uh, yeah, not a lot we can do except, you know, look really hard at, um, <laughs> all we can do is all we can do with, uh, track design, car design rules and regs. Um, but, uh, you're right. If, if, if it changes too much, then, then these, um, the things that these people were reaching for, uh, is, is changed. So, um, anything else or do you want to, do you want to go racing? Let's go racing. All right. Spa, uh, sort of a weird start to the uh, weekend, especially for Mercedes. Um, Hamilton had a uh, a crash at the end of practice three, um, and additionally, uh, the Mercedes powered cars of Kubica and um, Perez had uh, engine trouble. Uh, I think Perez in a practice session and Kubica in qualifying Q1, uh, his engine explodes uh, and causes a fire and a red flag. Um, 
which thankfully for Hamilton gives him more time, his team more time to, to fix that car. He, uh, they were still working on it from his crash from free practice three, but they do fix it. And he goes out, um, with the restart in Q1. Uh, and then Giovinazzi's engine explodes, uh, later Ferrari also running a new spec engine this weekend. Uh, a lot of, uh, new technology going into these cars. So maybe the, <laughs> the kinks are being worked out. Um, Raikkonen also, <laughs> uh, Marcus Erickson was standing by to fill in for Raikkonen in case uh, Raikkonen could not um, feel like he could not drive his car. He pulled a muscle apparently in the off season or the in the uh, the month long break on a motocross bike. Uh, but uh, thankfully for Raikkonen, he was able to drive the car, and Erickson just uh, watched the race, I guess. So, yeah, a lot of engine penalties here. And I'm just going to read on the Formula One website uh, the explanation for it. They have, uh, you know, um, uh, a page where they run down the starting grid for every every race. And usually at the the end, if there are any penalties, it's like a, a little blurb saying, this person got an, uh, a penalty for this. This time, it's a paragraph. So uh, it says on the official Formula One website, note, Stroll, Albon, Kafiat, and Giovinazzi required to start from the back of the grid due to multiple power unit element changes. Hulkenberg and Ricardo each dropped five places for use of additional power unit elements. Signs, 15 places. Kvyat, Giovinazzi, and Kubica penalized five places for unscheduled gearbox changes. Kubica races at Stewart's discretion after failing to set a qualifying time and required to start from the pit lane for making uh, car modifications under park Fermé conditions. So all of that means basically that what, what how people finished in qualifying is not how they started uh, in the race. But... Yeah, I missed um, – so I didn't watch qualifying day of, so I ended up uh-huh. doing qualifying back-to-back with the race. And it was very funny watching qualifying and then having the race begin basically telling me that everything I'd just seen had been, like, invalidated. Uh, like, the <laughs> yeah. the changes through the field were so extensive uh, that the, the table was substantially rearranged. But I do think, like, it it is that time of year where – Parts are wearing out, and you can either run the old spec and avoid the penalty, or sorry, war, you can either run the old engine, uh, the worn engine and the worn parts, and, and avoid the penalty, but the engine might explode, or you can take the penalty and be moved back, uh, you know, pretty buried somewhere in the grid. Uh, but it does seem like this is a time of year where, especially for these teams that have maybe been struggling with reliability to begin with, um, there's really not much uh, wiggle room when it comes to uh, power units. And one way or another, people are sort of being made to pay up, which I think also really underlines why teams have been so guarded about the prospects of lengthening the F1 season in any way. Yeah. Um, I think there may also be a, an element of strategy here where you just you, you dump in all your new upgrades and take all the penalties in one go. Um, and uh, try to get your car looking good for the, the latter half of the season. But this is how the grid ended up forming on the day. Charles Leclerc uh, on pole position in his Ferrari, just ahead of his teammate Sebastian Vettel, locking out 1-2. Uh, 
behind them, the two Mercedes is Lewis Hamilton and Valtteri Bottas. Uh, fifth place, Max Verstappen. Sixth place, Kimi Raikkonen, followed by Sergio Perez, uh, Kevin Magnussen, Roman Grosjean, and Daniel Ricciardo in 10th place. Behind him, we've got Norris, Hulkenberg, Gasly, uh, George Russell starting in his best start uh, in a Williams at 14th place. Uh, behind him, Signs, Stroll, Albon uh, in his first race as a Red Bull driver. Giovinazzi, Danny Kvyat, and Robert Kubica. Did you, uh, by the way, see the like traffic backup on the last run for Q3? The slow no. outlaps where uh, like Hamilton like nearly rear-ended uh, Botas. Oh, that's right. Yes. Yeah. So this is, you know, this has been one of those things where I, I thought there was maybe just a groupthink element happening in uh, F1 where people were just trying, like just the way timing was working out and people trying to sort of uh, all steal each other's slipstream. Uh, but it was interesting in the wake of this that both Vettel and Hamilton were saying at this point that the Pirelli, uh, the Pirellis they're running have too narrow a performance band and keeping them at the right temperature for your one lap hot lap uh, necessitates too ridiculous a, an outlap. And so repeated, I think, I think Q2 ended this way as well. You would see drivers on fast laps carving the way through really dense like chains of cars on their on their outlap. Uh, we've seen that a few other places this season, like we saw it at Austria, right? But we've generally thought, well, you know, it's a small circuit. It's happening at Spa, which is long as hell, and you've still got drivers who can't get out of each other's way. Um, so it does. I think I think it's very funny that Hamilton is out there saying now that the Prellies, uh, you know, are bad and they're, or at least that the way they're set up in this specific instance uh, is bad and leading to dangerous situations. Because uh, I am pretty sure that Mercedes vo- voted down uh, the motion to change the change the uh, Prelli specs uh, hmm. for the rest of the season, but. Uh, it, it is one of those things where um, Hamilton has a bad outlap once and immediately uh, suddenly sees the light and is like, we got to we got to do something about these Pirellis <laughs> and these ridiculous pressures. Yeah. Uh, anything else before the start of the race? Nope. All right. Uh, there there is a, um, uh, a a moment of silence for Antoine Hubert uh, that was. Uh, pretty pretty chilling to watch um but uh of course a good a good moment also on lap 19 um which is uh uber's number the audience stood and applauded uh which is also a nice touch um but uh when the race finally did get kicked off uh top four got away clean um max verstappen got a terrible start and tried to make up for it by diving to the inside of Kimi raikkonen just vintage uh, yeah, what do you oh. what do you think of this move? <laughs> uh, oh, it's just it, it's just such a chef kiss moment from Max. Um, I am amazed that the stewards were like, "Yeah, it's a racing incident," and and put it down to that, given some of the other things they've weighed in on, uh, because it was a really bad move. Um, it was incredibly poorly considered, um, and it was kind of a flash of. The, the old Max where just 
sees space where a car could theoretically go uh, and sort of tries to will himself through that space. But what he was trying to do, um, you know, so they start basically at the entrance to they have a very short run down to the Lasaurus hairpin. And there's a lot of runoff there, but the actual angle of the turn is incredibly sharp. I think it's, uh, I think it's sharper than 90 degrees. It kind of turns back on itself. And, um, at, and it comes to a really sharp point. Like the inside of the turn is basically just uh, a, a guardrail uh, and an armco barrier. And so, if you get it wrong, there's there's nowhere to go. You're just going to you're just going to hit a wall, um, and you can absolutely sort of spear yourself on that on that corner if you're not careful. And uh, Verstappen tried to get down the well, not even the inside line. It was like inside of the inside line. And the reason that you can't take that is because these cars don't have the turning radius to actually make that turn. Um, you know he. The way they the way they can sort of constructed it was he's trying to shoot down the inside. Uh, he, I think he's a little bit on the grass, so he also loses uh, a little bit of traction for uh, braking for his entry at a crucial moment, and that forces him to run even further inside uh, to avoid a, to avoid a collision. Um, and then uh, Kimi is just turning on the inside line of the turn, taking a pretty normal line, and at that point the the line that um, Verstappen is driving into just disappears. Um, and he hammers uh, Kimmy's right rear, uh, boosts him up on two wheels, and uh, completely breaks his suspension, which he doesn't seem to know. He makes it around the corner, uh, and then Verstappen takes off down, uh, down, the, down the old main straight. And um, clearly the car isn't steering correctly. Um, and he just launches it up the hill into the tire barrier and uh, is is out of the race. Um, yeah, it's it seemed like a really bad move um, and really kind of a a shocking one given how familiar this course is to a lot of these drivers. Yeah, I wonder if he's uh, tried that a few times in iRacing and come out clean. Although iRacing's no joke, you'll get. Yeah, no, this is damaged. the thing. Like, if you did that in iRacing, immediately your voice chat would light up, and uh, they will actually dock you in iRacing. For, That's like, true, yeah. Your there's there's enforcement in iRacing where you'll be like, um, I think, I'm not sure how it is now. Uh, I know that at a point they, they would eventually, like, ban you from certain higher levels of races. I don't know if they have some sort of scrub purgatory, uh, like in Dota. <laughs> where uh, you know people who've been convicted of like bad behavior go and race each other and have destruction derbies, uh, but yeah, no, that that move wouldn't fly in iRacing. Increasingly, like if you play um, like this year's edition of F1, they also try to sort um, racers online by in race conduct. Uh, really? So okay, yeah, cool. so like the move in any kind of serious racing sim is to eliminate people doing those kind of ridiculous like first first lap like i can win at the start uh type races and max just uh got extremely greedy well the big winner here uh lando norris he takes advantage of all this chaos and moves from 11th to fifth place which is awesome uh safety car comes out for this and then also carlos Sainz pulls off with a loss of power extending the safety car 
But when we finally got going again, we get a good restart from the Claire, who pulls out an advantage almost immediately from Fettel. Um, and speaking of advantages and disadvantages, Magnuson, though he started in, uh, what was it, 7th? 8th, um, but had moved up to 7th with uh, Verstappen going out. Uh, he and Grosjean just start plummeting through the field. Uh, lap 10, Perez gets by Magnuson with DRS. Gasly gets by the next lap, and then Stroll on lap 12. Um, and we'll check in a couple more times, but basically the Haas uh, crew... Uh, is just uh, does not have the race pace. Well, and they're losing positions at the exact same place every time. Um, you know, because if you know if you know K Mag, and I know you're a fan, uh, so mm-hmm. I, so I don't want to speak ill of the lad. Uh, <laughs> but nevertheless, like I did, if there is a way for him to make his car wide, uh, he will. And I think yeah. the first couple laps there, he did kind of successfully until everyone realized that he was so slow down the Camel Straight that you could just get him at the end into Lacombe every single time. And so it became like this grim ritual where it was just next next driver up, right behind him. Uh, I think, maybe, was it basically the DRS that sealed it, or were people doing it even before DRS reactivated? I think it was DRS uh, that basically, like, doomed him. Yeah, I think it, I think, uh, I want to say Perez and then Gasly, yeah, Um we're on DRS. Maybe Stroll was in a corner. There was there was a couple corner passes as well. It wasn't all DRS. Um, but, uh, yeah, also not doing so hot, it seems, Fettel. He, he was not pulling away from Hamilton. Uh, and, in fact, Hamilton got by with DRS on lap 10. Maybe Ferrari intentionally backing Mercedes up to give Leclerc some space, but I don't think Sebastian Vettel is the kind to uh, agree to a strategy like that. It looked like he was just maybe suffering a bit on uh, on his tires. Yeah, uh, Hamilton like called it immediately. I want to say uh, like on lap six or so, he immediately got on the radio and was telling the Mercedes pit wall that like uh, Vettel's not that quick. Um, so clearly he and we've seen this before the season. There's something about this year's Ferrari that does not suit Vettel. And mm-hmm. suits Leclerc just fine, but this was a really clear race where there is a clear difference between how well, how comfortable those two guys are in the car. Um, because Leclerc clearly had like the best car, the best setup uh, at at Spa this weekend, and Vettel appeared to be driving, uh, you know, a a car that was like an entire weight class down. Yeah. Uh, lap 15, more people getting past Magnussen. This time it's Albon into 11th place, uh, which is impressive considering he started in 17th. Um, and then we get uh, the first of the top four to pit. It's Sebastian Vettel pitting from second uh, on lap 16. Hamilton and Leclerc both told to push. Uh, and typically what we see here is, you know, the, the person uh, that you're racing pits and then you really turn it on and try to make up the time because yeah. they're going to have fresh tires. So you try to uh, overcut them. Yep. Um, and then when you come into pit the next lap, you've made up some time. That didn't really happen here. The guys were told to push, but they stayed out for a long time. Uh, Hamilton stayed out, Leclerc as well. And Vettel was actually lapping a lot faster than Leclerc. Uh, and when uh Leclerc eventually did pit on lap 21. He came out 
behind Vettel. Although that was five laps later. So he was told by his engineer, don't worry, it'll all be fine uh, in the end. Yeah, it was uh, interesting how this entire race, it felt like Ferrari had sort of passed down the orders like we are not screwing this one up. Like we have a, we have a strategy and we are going to have it unfold. And it did basically like clockwork uh, by, by all appearances. Um, and they, they did not even flirt with the idea of letting those two guys race. I think it was easier because Vettel was so clearly off pace that uh, he wasn't going to he wasn't going to make an issue of it uh, this weekend. But yeah. uh, it, it was a very uh, centrally directed Ferrari race compared to... Well, I guess the others have been centrally directed too, but they've been centrally <laughs> misdirected. Yeah. Uh, also around that time, Perez and Gasly are following Raikkonen and they both split around him on different sides and pass. I thought that was pretty cool. Perez, uh, I watched this race live actually and was able for the first time, I think, to actually vote for uh, the driver of the day, uh, and I voted for Perez because he just he passed a lot of people in this race. Um, let's see. Uh, lap 22, Gasly shown a black and white flag, which is a warning uh, for moving in the braking zone. I had I don't think I've ever seen a black and white flag before, so I just wanted to, <laughs> to signpost that one. Um, and then, uh, yeah, just after Leclerc pits, it's Hamilton, and then a lap later, Botas. Um, Hamilton, kind of a slow stop, but, um, even though Botas is faster, he still rejoins behind Hamilton, uh, in fourth place. So at, uh, the first, first round of pit stops, it becomes Vettel in first, followed by Leclerc and then Hamilton and then Botas for the top four. Uh, lap 25, Perez again passed, uh, a Haas, uh, Grosjean for ninth place. And sure enough, according to uh leclerc's engineer saying it'll be fine in the end leclerc closing fast on vettel and vettel is actually told uh hey let charles buy how do you think sebastian feels about this i think that is a question of sebastian's psychology more than like this is weird i feel i almost feel like the regular rules of team politics are kind of suspended right now where where sebastian is concerned this entire Ferrari era for him has been such a misadventure. Uh, and he has seemed so defeated at points this season that I'm not sure he's as territorial as we would have seen him be in the past. I think hmm. he has recognized that there's something about the car that is, that is not agreeing with him. Uh, but it is one of those things where I get a little bit concerned when I see Sebastian not even try to make an issue of it uh, where he just kind of goes along uh, while he takes a backseat in the strategy. I think it's this weekend. It was clearly unequivocally the right decision. This was not, this was not a place he should have been contesting. He would have looked bad doing it. It would have, would have definitely cost his team uh, a much needed win and a much needed boost to morale. But at the same time, if you see this again and again, it has to worry you a little bit, right? It's like it's like when your dog isn't acting right, uh, you know. Like just the like, I guess that that is the analogy. Is like there are 
sometimes you can tell just something is wrong because someone isn't as lively. Uh, someone isn't as as aggressive. They're just they're just a little bit like uh, listless and sort of disinterested in stuff they normally mm-hmm. care about. And Seb, like getting team ordered out of the way and being a great sport about it. Uh, if I see that happen again and again, I'm gonna be like, is he gonna be in the sport in two years? Because I certainly haven't thought he's been having fun this year. Uh, so if he just starts being like, yeah, let the kid go, and uh, I don't really care, I like that gets scary if you're if yeah. you're a Vettel fan. I saw some quote uh, that Hamilton said something along the lines of Sebastian Vettel will not be content to be the Rubens Barrichello of this Ferrari team. Um, but I think you're right. Last year, at least, we saw some fire from Vettel. Like he he got angry at at points. I mean, maybe that was to his detriment because you know he had a lot of spins and uh, boneheaded moves. Right. Um, so maybe he's just trying to keep his nose clean here. But it's tough. Like, what do you do when like anger becomes a crap fuel? There's some people who are powered by it, right? Like, uh, I think at points in his career, Lewis has absolutely been pugnacious uh, and sort of gotten his back up. He always has to see someone as a rival. Has to has to imagine himself himself beating them. Uh, there's there's a lot of competitors who have to imagine themselves being the underdogs. Like imagine slights. Uh, Michael Jordan famously is this is this type of of character. But what if anger just makes you dumb? Then what? Yeah. Like, and I think that's been the case with with Vettel. Um, like when when he's sort of given into his feelings, he's become a lesser version of himself. But he does need to kick it up a gear. So what is the thing he can tap into to address that? And I don't think he's found it. Uh, and it's a really tough point in your career to be sitting around trying to reinvent yourself and trying to tap into okay what's the thing that's going to power me now well it's not the tires because uh lap 28 Vettel says these tires won't make it to the end and uh karun chandik points out that ferrari only has used soft tires available um they don't pit him then but i, I think maybe uh, as, as Martin Brundle pointed out, they, they Ferrari could use Vettel to hold up the Mercedeses again. Um, and uh, like Kruin said, it doesn't really matter if he drops to fourth on the track uh, or in the pit. So um, well, let's see. They do eventually pit lap 34. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the tricky thing, though, for Mercedes trying to execute this pass is that the Ferrari is so fast that even though Seb's struggling, he keeps opening it up uh, down the Camel Strait and in the Lake Combe. So the optimal passing position is just not available to Mercedes. So they have to figure out another place they can do it, which is why uh, Hamilton ends up making multiple attacks down in bus stop, uh, which we've seen. We saw some other people making those moves because it's a, it's a long circuit. Like if you can get something done elsewhere in the track, you may as well because uh, waiting for Lacombe is only 44 laps. Uh, so you can't do that. Uh, every every time you want to pass somebody, uh, but it was interesting to see that like even driving kind of below his limits, uh, you know, driving a car that at least if, if it's not a wounded car, uh, at least it doesn't fit him. That Ferrari engine is now kind of dominant. It's not just yeah. that it's competitive. It just you know you saw it in the in the qualifying times where they were you know had multiple tenths uh, on the Mercedes. But down Kemmel, Hamilton couldn't close it up, so he had to use the uh, Mercedes still superior arrow 
to get the job done uh, through Sector 2 and Sector 3. Um, but it wasn't easy. And it was really when those, when those tires fell off that uh, Vettel really became vulnerable. Yeah, that's a good point. And it, it will uh, be good to keep that in mind when we get to Monza. Um, but uh, Sergio Perez still passing people. He gets Ricardo for seventh place on lap 27. Then on lap 29, he gets uh, Giovinazzi, who had not uh, yet pitted. Uh, lap 32, Albin gets by Gasly for 10th place, which really has got to sting. Um, and then Albin, uh, I think the same lap, makes a great switchback move on Ricardo for 8th place, which I don't think I could imagine Gasly doing. Do you remember this move? Uh, vaguely. Like, let me see. Uh, yeah, they are my... on, yeah, they are on different tires. Ricardo's on Yeah, right, at, right out of Ravage. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, but that's also because I'd forgotten this. There were some crazy tire strategies this weekend, right? Like, Ricardo was on kind of a we're going to leave you down there, leave you out there until you're driving on rims strategy. <laughs> yeah, which they've done before with him. Yeah, I, you know, I get those um, those Hail Mary type strategies. Maybe we'll get lucky with a safety car or, or something. Uh, at the same time, you really do make your drivers look like chumps out there a little bit. Like it, it was, it was a great move on Ricardo, but I think Ricardo ends up looking way more flat footed there because he is driving. He's got such a compromised drive at that point. It's like one of those things where you're setting me up to be somebody else's sports center highlight. <laughs> yeah. Cause he's only on the soft. He start, started on the softs, but he's only on him for one lap. And then he comes in for uh, oh right because he got caught out he got squeezed in the uh, chain oh, reaction yes. following uh, with stroll yeah yeah um, um yeah so okay so that that would explain why he was I, I wonder why they had done that um, because they felt they'd been forced into an early stop so they're trying to get it back um, but yeah it did. It, it did set him up to be kind of a tackling dummy uh, for for Albin, uh, who, who did look great. Like I think this was kind of a race where they he did a good job of at least starting to justify the faith they put in him. Yeah, he. I was a little worried because early in the race he kind of got mired behind Hulkenberg, but uh, again he was on uh, the medium tire where, where Hulkenberg was on the soft. But I think he really came into his own in the latter half of this race, and uh, yeah, I thought he I thought he did a great. Uh, a great job. First time in that Red Bull. Um, all right. Lap 38. Albin again gets by Kvyat with DRS, his old teammate. Hold on. We got to call out this moment. Lap 37, we hear the radio call between Grosjean and uh, his pit. I think I missed this. Oh, dude, this is not good. Uh, okay. <laughs> So I, I wrote this like I was I backed up I was like I'm I'm transcribing this. Okay, so lap 37. At this point, as has always happened, uh, at this point the Haas cars had either converged next to each other in the in the order or were in the process of doing so. Uh, but they mm-hmm. both kind of been plummeting to whatever their final resting point in the uh, in the order is. And the pit wall gets on the radio to Grosjean. Uh, cars are ahead on are on old tires. We have chances still. Uh, we, we, we have still chances uh, with, with the plan. And Groshan says, 
No, there is not. There is not. I'm sorry, dude. I've been here 30 laps. We're down 30 kph for racing. It's impossible. I did hear this. Yeah, and I think at that point he said, "Can we just retire the car?" Um, and so he he just wanted to be done. And right like a minute later, they ended up interviewing Steiner, asking him, you know, as usual, "Hey, what's up?" Um, and Steiner knew. Uh, I, I don't think we would have, be having the season. Uh, he's, he's had multiple interviews where he's talked about this is the most confounding car he's ever worked on. Uh, but Steiner's uh, Steiner's response was basically that uh, they're losing they're losing pace in traffic, and then on straights they're just slow. Um, and so the the issue they had uh, it's, it sounds like their problem is arrow. Uh, he was like, we had to carry too much drag. Uh, and that's why we're slowed down the straights. Uh, because the thing they called out is that I think Haas is now on the new spec Ferrari. So they've gotten the power upgrade. They should be like flying down those straights. But the Haas arrow is so bad that to generate the downforce they need to drive safely around the track, um, they had to increase the drag on the car significantly. And so all the edge, the... Uh, engine gave them the kind of balled up and threw in the trash, uh, which got to be really frustrating. Um, you can see on the track you've got the best engine, uh, you know, on, on the grid, and your car might actually look more like trash. Uh, I did find a quote from Grosjean on RaceFans.net uh, explaining why he wanted to retire. Uh, he says it was just a hard feeling. Obviously, those engines have got to do a lot of races so i just asked do you want to save the engine a little bit for future races we're always limited in mileage and free practice so if we can save some great but i guess it was the right call to finish the race (laughs) come on man finish the race uh oh also correction uh uh let's see it was rosberg that said uh, Fettel was like a Barrichello in that race, just waving past your teammate and helping him out. Amazing for a four-time world champion. He won't be very happy with that, that's for sure. Uh, all right, so toward the end of this race, it does get a little more tense as Leclerc catches back markers. Uh, he and Hamilton have to m- make it through uh, a whole bunch of uh, closely packed uh, lapped cars. Hamilton gets up to two seconds um, away by lap uh 42 and is lapping actually a half a second a lap quicker um but right at the end the camera cuts to antonio giovinazzi's uh, car uh, into a wall um which frankly i think everyone sort of held their breath at because uh it was at a fast corner he just sort of slides off and and noses in um but very quickly they get the radio message that uh that he's okay so i think everyone was like Whew. yeah um but charles leclerc comes across the line in first place and norris is stranded by timing and scoring uh down there as he's crossing yeah. the finish line norris's car is just pulled over to the side yeah which was super weird and then <laughs> i don't know if it was during the the broadcast or uh just in the highlight video i watched on youtube but um yeah his car just kind of dies on the penultimate lap uh just like signs did which is just oh god reno engines everyone it's funny to have had the you know growing pains of honda um 
as like this new engine that has kind of finally figured out where all the problems were, it seems, or certainly more than, you know, three years ago with McLaren. Uh, but then to have that be exchanged for a Renault engine that was winning championships with Red Bull. How aggravating. Sometimes um, your career moves are just not going to sync up with the direction of the sport. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it is... Renault's in such a weird place, I think it's going to get weirder. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, but yeah, Charles Leclerc, first win in Formula One, he says this one is for Antoine. Um, apparently they, you know, race together. He gaslighted um, and Hubert, apparently. Like, I think they said they, they, they started, they were part of the same racing cohort, even. Um, yeah. So it's... It's weird. I think for our purposes, we tend to think of these guys as sort of springing into existence the moment they're recruited into Formula One, right? That's, you know. Right. From and, obscurity. Right. And we forget that there is this, there, there's a pipeline, um, and a lot of these, these young drivers um, were kids together. And so there's a. I think there's a dimension to these kind of accidents that is unprecedented to compare to what the old heads uh, talk about and experienced when when they were coming up. Uh, yeah, I can't imagine what that must have been like for him um, to have such elation for finally winning a Formula One race in a Ferrari uh, that he has wanted to do for you know, his entire life and for Jules Bianchi and his dad, uh, and to have, uh, you know, a, a colleague, a, a close one at that, um, you know, lose his life the, the day before. I just, again, I think Charles Leclerc is, uh, you know, tempered in some pretty, pretty hot fire. And, uh, I, I believe that that will only he's the kind of person that 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 can only make stronger. So I, I have uh, um, a lot of respect for him and uh, high hopes uh, for where his career uh, can go. Uh, but let's run down the finishing order here. Charles Leclerc wins the Belgian Grand Prix. Lewis Hamilton in second and Valtteri Bottas rounding out the podium behind them. Sebastian Vettel comes home in fourth. Alexander Albon in fifth place from 17th. Uh, Sergio Perez in 6th. Danny Kvyat in 7th. Nico Hülkenberg in 8th. Pierre Gasly in ninth. Lance Stroll uh, rounding out the top 10. Behind them, Lando Norris classified in 11th place. Um, I think that's because when the race is over, everyone finishes their lap, so he... F- I actually don't know how that works. I'm going to have to think about that for a bit. Um, all right. Norris is in 11th. Then Magnussen, Grosjean, Ricardo, Russell in 15th. Then we've got Raikkonen, Kubica, uh, Giovinazzi, who uh, crashed, uh, Signs, whose car uh, died, and uh, Verstappen, who crashed on the opening lap. Also, Sebastian Vettel scored an additional point for setting the fastest lap of the race. And that's Belgium. Uh, speaking of places that we run races, Rob, we've got a few notes in news here. Uh, you want to talk about the F1 2020 calendar? Oh, yeah. We got a feast 
Hope you're hungry for racing, Drew. Mm-mm. Uh, F1 2020 runs from March 5th through November 29th. Uh, big changes. And this is going to be the longest F1 uh, calendar uh, they've ever had. It's a 22-race calendar. Germany is out, um, which is a pretty huge bummer. And yeah. I, that, like it does not feel right uh, to have Germany drop out, much the same way that it didn't feel right when Magni Kaur, uh dropped out. Uh, but joining the calendar in its stead are Vietnam and the Netherlands. Uh, at Zandvoort. Those are both spring races. Uh, Netherlands is going to be where the European leg of the season begins. Uh, okay. The other- That'll be a freaking show. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> I just don't know how they're going to drive through the orange smoke. Um, <laughs> the compromise they've made with the teams to uh, handle the engine, the engine wear is they're allotting more MGUKs uh, for the season. I don't know if that's going to cut energy it. recovery. Yeah, yeah. Like, I think um, I think the teams have some some justified uh, concerns about how far they're being asked to stretch these these engines. Uh, on the other hand, both for cost control reasons and for uh, needing to address the sports um, maybe laughable sustainability in some <laughs> respects. Uh, they, they did need to uh, have engines that were a little more durable uh, than, than they used to be. Um, but I don't know, as I do every year around this time, I begin to feel a little bit cheated when I start seeing so many drivers starting positions compromised by uh, engines that are just worn out or, uh, you know, there's an emergency gearbox replacement. Uh, so yeah, we'll see. We'll see how that all that that all goes next year. But it's going to be a lot of racing. There's going to be a couple more back to backs. Uh, so yeah, we we are going to be entertained for from from spring until uh, almost the start of winter. Man, I am really curious. I'm curious to see both of these new places. Vietnam just seems like a crazy track. Yeah. Um, and what a cool place to put it. And the Netherlands, I just want to see how nuts it gets with with Verstappen fans. Yeah. Um. Speaking of uh, driver silliness, we mentioned sort of a rumor last week that Hulkenberg uh, was teasing that he was going to uh, maybe be replaced by Esteban Ocon. That did indeed come to pass. We've heard no confirmation yet on what Hulkenberg is doing, but Esteban Ocon will be taking his seat uh, at Renault partnering uh, Daniel Ricciardo. I think we know what's going to happen to Hulkenberg. Yeah, so um, let me let me hear it, Rob. So uh, Ciro Abitabul, uh when he was talking about why they were letting Hulkenberg go, uh, you know, he basically said the team just needs needs a full restart, which I agree is true. But I might consider him part of that restart. Like at this yeah. point, I'm not sure. Like Ciro, uh, if it's moving day, I don't know, man. Uh, but he, then he gives, and this is a direct quote. He said, "It is important to say that we have." Not a certainty, but we can, because we cannot be certain of anything, but a very high chance that Nico will be able to continue his racing career. There's no fucking way that's not Haas. Especially because you had Steiner saying before the Ocon move was announced that he was considering Ocon, Hulkenberg, and maybe Grosjean to partner with Magnussen next year. So Magnussen's seat is safe. Uh, Steiner is just sort of thinking out loud about which of those drivers he might want to have alongside Magnussen next year. Uh, well, one of them was off the table, and the other has been kind of middling. And uh, I think I think they're 
polar opposites when you talk about consistency. Grosjean is, uh, well, Hulkenberg is Mr. Consistency. Yep. Um, and he's, you know, a Le Mans winner. Yep. I, I think he's, a, he's as safe a bet as you can get in Formula One uh, to just maintain a certain even keel. Grosjean has some flashes of brilliance, but frustrates you uh, <laughs> with his ins- inconsistency. And yeah, his contract is up. He It was up at the end of uh, 2018, and they renewed him for one year, which frankly is not a resounding uh, you know, vote of confidence. So that and the fact that Hulkenberg is just waiting in the wings there, I think, I, I think Haas needs, frankly, such an even keel like Hulkenberg to figure out their dang car. Um, I like Grosjean as a person. Uh, he's hard to root for as a driver uh, because of these inconsistencies. Um, I would feel bad if he were to leave the sport. I would also feel bad if Hulkenberg were to leave the sport, but um, I think you're right. I think that's probably the most likely. I mean, both of these guys are uh, entering last chance saloon, I would say, um, to, to borrow a phrase from, from Brundle. I was, we were talking about this uh, at my place this weekend. My partner was sort of thinking out loud about it, and, and, and her view on Hulkenberg was, it was interesting. She remarked that Hulkenberg never has a bad race, really. He never, mm-hmm. like, there's nothing you can point to that, you know, says he's anything less than, as you said, consistent uh, and, and strong. Uh, but at the same time, never, like, never once in recent years, uh, not really since the start of his career, have you ever been able to point to him and say, wow, he drove the shit out of that thing and drove way beyond what that car is probably capable of. And if you think about... Uh, you know, Alonzo in that piece of crap McLaren, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the last year or two. A George Russell like, in this Williams. Yeah. Uh, Kimmy in this hour or Alfa Romeo. Yeah. Like, even if you don't have that competitive a car, you do need to ma- have those statement races uh, mm-hmm. that indicate, look, the car is holding me back, but I have a much higher ceiling. And her argument, and I, I do kind of agree with this, is Hulkenberg, in a pretty lengthy career, hasn't made the case for himself that he's that kind of driver. Um, which means he is perfect for a place like Haas, which is so underwater uh, in terms of, well, a lot of things. But in particular, uh, it, it's technical development that he's a perfect fit for that. Uh, Groshan is Hulkenberg, except uh, occasionally get a flash of brilliance, but more frequently you will have a really regrettable um, accident. Sometimes mm-hmm. in the pits. Yeah. Uh, finally in the news here, do you, do you want to touch on this, uh, this oh. one, this bullet point that I have put in bold here? <sighs> this is so disappointing, man. Speaking of us. <sighs> So, William Story of Rich Energy appears to be back at Rich Energy as CEO, and the status of Lightning Volt is ambiguous. Uh, and so, Gunther Steiner said the final decision about the ultimate fate of the Rich Haas partnership 
should be made before Singapore, but he wasn't really clear on who was making it. Uh, he said he's I'm not getting, not getting the business details, but in terms of their attempt to sort of cleanly move William's story out, that looks like at least on paper it didn't happen, and so they might there might now be two companies uh, of of dubious of of dubious background. <laughs> Uh, where there used to be one, or it might, or it might genuinely be that William's story, for all his bluster and ridiculousness, may not have been lying when it came to what was and was not possible when it came to his company. Um, so we will see. Uh, but it looks like this soap opera is not done, and the pro- the problem there is that. Um, now he, if he does once again can make the call the shots over at Haas's title sponsor, that leaves Haas in a weird position. Yeah, it certainly does. I mean, we've seen a lot of financial uncertainty with teams before. Most recently, I think with uh, Racing Point, formerly Force India, they, however, were able to somehow transcend that. Um, although you could probably argue that the last few years of that car have not been. Uh, where they have been in the past. Um, but yeah, never never a good thing for a team. Hopefully they uh, <laughs> figure that one out. But Singapore is September 22nd, so that'll put a uh, timeline on that. Uh, speaking of upcoming races, let's talk about Monza, Rob. Let's do it. What are your, what, when you think of Monza, what kind of feelings come to mind? Oh, speed and please, the love of God, don't let me screw up uh, Parabolica again. Damn it, I did it. I, I got the angle wrong and came out 20 kph down from where I should be. Uh, it is such a simple, straightforward track. Yeah. Uh, and yet, because it is so simple, you really do have to be perfect on your execution uh, in the, you know, in, in at each corner. Uh, because this is all about maintaining speed, and there is so much speed to be gained or lost in that last sweeping uh, parabolica hairpin that uh, it is it is a deceptively straightforward looking track, but it really does require a lot of expertise to bring the most out of it. Yeah, and it's uh, it's been on the calendar for a long, long time. It was built in 1922. Uh, it has an old oval section that used to be um, uh, a part of the entire track, but uh, that that oval is not used anymore. Uh, the This layout was last changed in 2000, but has remained virtually the same since about the mid-70s. Uh, the circuit itself is roughly banana-shaped, if you were to look at it from the top. Uh, it is um, 5.8 kilometers or 3.6 miles long, and the start-finish straight is uh, 1.1 kilometers or 0.7 miles of that. Virtually no elevation change, uh, and it's basically just straights, chicanes, and some long corners, giving it uh, the season's highest average lap speed. Um, and as you mentioned, an emphasis on straight line speed, uh, speed and um, uh, slipstreaming. So technically there are 11 corners here, but that includes the chicanes, so there's really only four main ones. Uh, it starts with a long straight into a tight right-left chicane, so definitely be on the lookout for some action there, uh, especially on the opening lap. Uh, then we got a long right-hander called Curva Grande, of course, uh, that ends in another chicane that leads into Lesmo, which is a two-corner complex, uh, followed by um, another straight, which is actually kind of curved. But after that, you get the Ascari chicane, 
Uh, and then another straight that leads into Parabolica, this long right-hander that is basically a really, really long hairpin uh, that brings you back to the start. Uh, last year, this is where Marcus Erickson had that uh, crazy rolling crash in Free Practice 2 uh, that is chronicled in uh, the Netflix series Drive to Survive. Um, Raikkonen set the lap here with his pole position, um, doing a 119.119, an average of 264 kilometers per hour or 164 miles per, a- uh, miles per hour average, uh, which is the fastest ever lap in Formula One. Uh, Vettel there last year started second. Hamilton and Vettel tangled on the opening lap, which resulted in uh, one of Vettel's many spins that year. Uh, well, this later is where it really started to go wrong, right? This is like this is yeah, the crime scene uh, for <laughs> when the season became terminal, uh, I would say. Yeah, at Ferrari's home race. Uh, later, there was some great fighting for the lead between Hamilton and Raikkonen. They trade places a couple of times, but ultimately, Hamilton won out. Um, again, in on Ferrari's home turf. Verstappen and Botas also had a shootout there last year, with Verstappen earning a penalty for forcing Botas into the runoff at the first chicane. Uh, yeah, a lot of, lot of sparks. Um, one of these old, historic tracks, and of course... I expect to see lots of red in the crowd, which is really fun. Giant grandstand-sized flags, uh, smoke flares. I, I really, you know, I get a sort of um, uh, vicarious excitement from seeing fans like that. It's, it's something that you get in Italy, you get it in uh, Japan, Britain to some degree. Um, I, I always love seeing that. Yeah, I mean, uh, this is terms- the thing that can't be replaced with as they take, like, it, it feels like all the great venues are in danger sometimes. Uh, yeah. You know, the future's uncertain. Uh, but this is the thing that money can't buy. You know what I mean? The the um, the, the race fees can't, can't buy this, uh, yeah. th- this kind of enthusiasm. Uh, expect to see teams running their lowest drag setups, uh, which <laughs> results in some really tiny rear wings. Uh, cars with a lot of horsepower will go well here, like Ferrari, uh, while teams with more of an aero focus like Red Bull won't have as much of an advantage because their strengths lie with uh, the lower well, speed corners. I'm curious. Yeah? The Honda engine has considerably more power than than they, than they expected at this point in the season. Mm-hmm. We didn't see what Verstappen could really do. That's um, true. With a race pace. And we did see Albin clawed his way pretty far forward uh, in a car that he was kind of new to. So I'm actually really curious. Like, for me, this is, okay, what's that Honda actually got? Because yeah. is it just that it's just good enough now that the arrow on the Red Bull is finally able to produce some competitive advantage? Or do they have a really, like, top-flight power unit in there that's capable of taking it to Mercedes? Because Mercedes is weak right now. Uh, Before Mm -hmm. this most recent race, Hamilton said the new engine, basically the jack, uh, gave them less than half a tenth uh, per per lap at Spa, uh, which, given the length of that lap, is not good. And... Uh, you basically said it was a reliability improvement. So, like, as far as Mercedes can get that engine, it's basically at max. And I get the sense they're kind of keeping their powder dry until they have a sense of what the new engine regs are going to be. But, like, Honda is just giving everything they got. So I'm so curious. 
I would not be surprised if we see uh, to return uh, some sparks where we weren't expecting them. Uh, maybe between the Ferraris and Red Bulls. Interesting. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a good call. Uh, I have a quote here from Toto Wolf, team principal of Mercedes from FormulaOne.com, talking about his engines. He says, quote, we introduced phase three of our power unit and we had two failures on uh, Checo and Robert's cars. Uh, that's Sergio Perez and uh, Robert Kubica, which are not understood. Uh, it didn't compromise us massively. It did a tiny bit. Uh, we were not taking any risks in their race but it was certainly not a comfortable situation because the failures looked to be different and are not analyzed yet and understood. So more, uh, more question marks for them going into Monza. Tire-wise, we've got uh, a pretty, pretty even, it looks like. Uh, one or two hards, the C2. Um, for everybody, between two and four mediums, the C3. And between eight and ten, uh softs the c4 um yeah not a lot of uh a lot of standout patterns there weather wise let's see looks to be nice and warm on qualifying day just balmy uh a 70 mm, 72 degrees fahrenheit or 22 degrees uh celsius very small chance of precipitation, about 7% at qualifying time. About 50% humidity, though. Uh, and winds, about 10 miles an hour or uh, 6... Uh, I'm sorry, 10 kilometers an hour or 6 miles an hour. Same on race day. Wind-wise, uh, a little more humid and a little cooler temperatures. Uh, race time looks to be about 70 degrees Fahrenheit, 21 degrees um, uh, Celsius, Precipitation, however, 50%. That's a coin flip, Rob. I don't remember if I've seen rain at Monza before. But that would be interesting. Are we sure Seb didn't lose it? Uh, did it rain that day last year? I don't think so. It was gray, but it's often, yeah. I can't. Maybe before the race started? Yeah. Oh, no, I think the most vivid uh, rainy Monza I ever saw was, uh, I want to say Barrichello won that race. Uh, basically drove through a pretty significant rainstorm on slicks um, wow. and like stayed competitive. And then as the track dried, uh, turned some great laps. It's one of those like, damn, like Rubens, if you've never been given your shot, who knows? Yeah. Uh, driver not throwing away his shot. Lewis Hamilton, 268 points uh, in the Drivers' Championship, followed by Valtteri Bottas with 203. Max Verstappen in third place with 181. Sebastian Vettel close behind with 169. Also hot on the heels, Charles Leclerc with 157. Uh, then we jump down a bit to sixth place, Pierre Gasly with 65 points. Uh, Carlos Sainz with 58 Danny Kvyat in 8th place with 33. Raikkonen's got 31. And Alexander Albon in 10th place with 26 points. Norris has 24. Ricardo with 22. Perez and Hulkenberg tied at 21 points for 13th place. Lance Stroll's got 19 points. Magnussen with 18. Roman Grosjean's got 8. Antonio Giovinazzi and Robert Kubica have 1 point in uh, tied for 18th. And George Russell has 0 points. Unfortunately, could not convert that best starting 14th place to a points finish. Constructors, Mercedes has got 471. Ferrari in 2nd with 
326, Red Bull with 254. McLaren in a solid fourth place with 82 points. Scuderia Toro Rosso has 51 points in fifth place. Renault's got 43. Racing Points got 40. Alfa Romeo with 32. Jane Hassan team, 26 points. And Williams with one point. Uh, Fantasy League, you can join our F1 Fantasy League uh, with the invite code in the show notes. Uh, in 10th place, we've got Bo to the Future Part 3. Ninth is Maka F1. Then we've got St. Jovese Racing Team, Dragon Ball GT, Rich Volt F1 Energy Team, pending foreclosure, in sixth place. Fry the Tires is in fifth, followed by DEFCON 1. Number three is Steering Wheel, Hey, Hey, Give It To Me, Move, Come On. Number two, Mercedes All The Way. And in the number one slot, the Hamiltons Break The System. Uh, If you'd like to send us an email, you can do so at shiftf1podcast at gmail.com. We've got a couple here. First one from Philip. Rob, do you want to take this one? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Philip writes, love you guys, love the podcast, love F1. I've never emailed before, but I had a thought during the recent race. Figured it would make a good conversation topic, so here we go. If Red Bull also owned Toro Rosso, why is the Toro Rosso car so much slower? Wouldn't they want both of their teams to have the best car? I'm picturing Helmet Marco as a Bond villain standing in the shadows. This is the best aero package we have, Mr. Tost, I promise. Do you doubt my word? Uh, so, as far as this A team and B team setup they're running, uh, I think you already hit on it here. Um, the teams are under different management as far as they go. Like, yes, Helmet Marco ultimately directs Red Bull Motorsports, uh, but uh, uh, Franz Toast is running a different team than Christian Horner is. It's not, it's not, even a minor league relationship is a little bit misleading uh, because even though that's how they use it for their development drivers, uh, I think if, if, if Tost ever got a, a chance to like take a race off Red Bull, I think you would look hard at, at trying to do it. Uh, they have finished ahead of, of Red Bull at times. Uh, in terms of like the differences between the teams, um, Part of it is that I don't know if this is enforced by the rules, but there are certain. Uh, so as far as like the the Taro Rosso car went, uh, if memory serves, the entire back end from the engine all the way through the rear air elements, those were Red Bull parts. Uh, they they started the season with the same package, but they were allowed to do their own development. I want to say on the front end and uh, side pods, side pod arrow. And so to a degree, they already are carrying over a lot of, uh, of know-how and design uh, between the teams. Nevertheless, they are different teams and they operate according to different strategies. Uh, so this, this really isn't one of the situations where Helmet Marco has two chess pieces on the board. It's rather more that he is uh, the controlling investor in two different companies. Is almost the way I'd put it. Yeah, I think that's uh, uh, a good explanation. Um, all right, not really a question here from Eric, but uh, more a uh, an elaboration. Yeah, what, what the hell's the subject like? Dornbos, the enigma. <laughs> uh, Eric says, "Dear shifters, seeing as you mentioned former Red Bull driver Robert Dornbos." Uh, you aced the pronunciation, Drew. I hope I did the second time as well. Uh, I thought you might want to know a little more about him. 
Dornbus drove for Minardi and Red Bull, but never became a mainstay despite a healthy amount of talent. He also competed for AC Milan. What? Yes, the Italian soccer team, but also no, not the actual soccer team that played soccer. Bear with me. He competed in what was known as Super League Formula, a racing series featuring open wheelers associated with football teams from around the globe, including Liverpool, Tottenham, Flamengo, AS Roma, PSV Eindhoven, and of course, Anderlecht. This rather puzzling format died out in 2011 due to lack of funds. To this day, I'm still not entirely convinced it actually happened. Even the name sounds like uh, what an unlicensed Konami version of an F1 game would be called. Anyway, Dornbus went on to compete in IndyCar and is currently a pundit on Ziggo, the Dutch Formula One broadcaster. The guy's quite insightful and tends to be well-balanced in stark contrast to every other member of the Ziggo sports team. He also sells adult toys, including a fake phallus that has been described as a, quote, remote-controlled high-tech device for long-distance relationships. Anyways, I'll be sure to inform you if his career path takes him to even stranger places, perhaps in 2029 when, I don't know, he will have organized the Lunar GP, won Eurovision, and cloned Max Verstappen 17 times. Kind regards, Eric. Thank you, Eric. Wait, so I just Googled Super League Formula. Um, First hit was a YouTube video called Super League Formula Cars Epic Sound at Monza. (laughs) Uh, they were running 4.2 liter V12s. Whoa. Yeah, dude. That's a big engine. That is a big engine. And That's I gotta be honest, the sound is pretty epic. Like, I'm listening <laughs> okay. to it, like, I had to turn it down because it hurt my ears. Uh, huh. What a weird... We'll link that in the show notes. I was into, I was into open wheel racing at that time, too. I can't believe I never heard any of this, because this is such a... You figure people would have talked about it just to laugh at it like the XFL or something. Well, it sounds like eSports. This is exactly what soccer teams are doing with eSports now. Yeah. But instead of video games, it's race cars. What a weird... And they were doing it up till 2011. What a wild time to be doing that. Okay. Uh, if you want to send us... Weird Racing Series, you can do so at, again, shiftf1podcast at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at shiftf1podcast. I'm at Drew Scanlon. That is at Rob Zachney. Uh, Danny O'Dwyer is at Danny O'Dwyer. Uh, and since Danny's not here, I guess I'll just have to race around the world myself. Formula 2 is also uh, racing in Monza this weekend. Uh, we've got the Xfinity Series of NASCAR racing at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway uh, for the Indiana 250. You guessed it. World Superbike Championship is in, oh boy, I don't even know where this is, Autodromo Internacional do Algarve in Portugal, all right, um, for their round 10 event. Uh, MXGP is in Turkey for the Motocross Grand Prix of Turkey. Super GT is at Autopolis. Autopolis. Sounds like heaven. <laughs> which is in well that's where Optimus Prime is buried <laughs> thank you uh, yes uh, there's a big um, technological tombstone there in Kamitsue village Hita city Oita prefecture Japan it is owned by the Kawasaki Motors Corporation and we got NASCAR They're also at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway for the Big Machine Vodka 
400 at the Brickyard. I don't know why it's any different than Heineken sponsoring. Uh, <laughs> actually, hold on, though. Did you see that terrible uh, trophy this weekend? Oh, my God. It's that, horrible. Oh, my God. That atrocious Johnny Walker. Like, how much do I have to pay to, like, can I unwin this race? And, like, you guys can take this <laughs> off my hands. Like, I can't show this to anyone. Ugh. Like, for the rest of... Oh, God, just imagine having that in your in your trophy case and having that be the most sentimentally important trophy in your case. And yeah. it's that terrible, um, that terrible Virtua Cop Johnny Walker uh, <laughs> statue. We also got Formula One this weekend, don't you know? Practice One kicks off Friday, September 6th at 5 a.m. Eastern Time on ESPN2 followed by Practice 2 at 9 a.m. on ESPNU. Practice 3 the following day, Saturday, September 7th, at 6 a.m. Eastern Time on ESPN2. Qualifying then uh, at 9 a.m. on ESPN News. And then the race, Rob Zachney, Sunday, October 8th, at 9.05 a.m. Eastern Time on ESPN2. The Deuce! Uh, Anything else, Rob? Nope, I think that about covers it. We got back-to-back races. I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to Monza. It's always a good time. Uh, if you'd like to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash shiftf1. Get access to all of our uh, weird bonus episodes. Uh, we've got some more of those coming in September, so be on the lookout for that. Uh, have a good race weekend, everyone. We will see you all next week. <laughs>